The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. If only there were something to talk about. This is Thursday, September 21st, 2017. Thank you very much for listening and for supporting this free independent news when you use and bookmark the Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. About two miles north of this studio is a seafood market and restaurant that's popular with tourists and locals alike. One reason for that popularity is the owners of those establishments have their own boats to catch much of the fresh fish and shrimp they sell. One of those boats, the 75-foot trawler Captain Eddie, sailed along Florida's Gulf Coast three weeks ago down to the Keys to get more shrimp in what was to be a month-long voyage. On board were the boat's highly respected captain, a third-generation shrimper, 61-year-old Edward Potter, his friend and shipmate, Carl Shepard, and a cat named Motorboat. But a week into the trip, Hurricane Irma was predicted to hit Florida and ride northward along the Atlantic shoreline on the East Coast. That captain, who had been going out to sea since he was a baby, decided to stay put near Fort Jefferson in Key West. But then Irma did the unexpected, the storm heading north on the west coast of Florida, the route Captain Eddie was to take to get home. The two men tried to outrun the storm in that boat. They did not succeed. On Sunday, the boat was tossed about and the engine room began to fill with water. Captain Potter called for help, but the Coast Guard had already relocated its rescue boats elsewhere. The Carnival cruise ship Elation, which was on its way to the Bahamas for maintenance, also got that distress call from the shrimp boat, and in almost total darkness, in swelling seas and strong winds, changed course to respond as the Captain Eddie began to sink. The cruise ship didn't arrive quite in time. Captain Potter had inflated the life raft and put his beloved motorboat into his cat carrier. As the captain climbed into the raft with that carrier, the carrier was pulled out of his hand and vanished. The seafaring cat, a fourth-generation fisherman, Carl Shepard, did not make it onto the raft. The last words Potter heard as his boat sank into the raging sea were from Shepard, the best man at his wedding, who was shouting, Captain Eddie, Captain Eddie. Carl Shepard was one of about 70 people who died in Hurricane Irma, nearly half of those here in the U.S., Captain Potter, who will hear Carl's last words forever in his head, was rescued and has returned to his home port about two miles north of this studio. Hurricane Irma arrived at this location as a Category 2 storm and left as a Category 1. My home, which also houses this studio and was about as hurricane-ready as any home can be, endured the 95-mile-an-hour winds without damage and served as shelter for me and my wife and some close friends who had to evacuate their own homes just a mile from here to escape possible storm surges. Their homes were also undamaged. And together, we were about as lucky as hurricane targets can get. And we know others were not lucky at all. In that storm, or Harvey before it, or from a new hurricane and now a devastating earthquake. More about all those shortly. And a heartfelt thank you to those of you from around the country and around the world who expressed your concern. First, however, more recent and equally important events in what is absolutely the busiest time in my 45 years of electronic journalism. Despite all the airtime dedicated to Hurricane Irma and a massive earthquake in Mexico, there were signs of huge progress in the Trump-Russia investigation these past two weeks. 
but this week has been a fireworks display of revelations. We learned that the FBI raided the home of Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort because special counsel investigators believed Manafort would destroy evidence and that agents were so keen on capturing that evidence in time, they picked the lock on Manafort's home in the middle of the night and secured the data before knocking on his bedroom door to announce their arrival. We learned that U.S. intelligence wiretapped Manafort almost continuously from 2014 all the way through the early days of the Trump White House using a warrant from the nation's secretive National Security Court, the FISA Court, created after 9-11. And we now know that U.S. government surveillance of Manafort actually dates back 11 years. We learned that during the bugging of Manafort earlier this year, he communicated a lot with Trump and that Trump himself may be on those recordings. We learned this week that Mueller's team told Manafort to expect to be indicted. We learned that Mueller is trying to get from the White House documents on all kinds of things, from the firings of FBI Director James Comey and Deputy Secretary of State Sally Yates to the meeting in which Trump spilled classified information to top Russian officials in the Oval Office, including a source of U.S. intelligence. From Don Jr.'s meeting with the Russians at Trump Tower to all documents related to both Paul Manafort and Mike Flynn, Mueller wants all of that stuff, which means Mueller is now focusing on Trump himself. We learned that Donald Trump Jr. has shaken off his Secret Service protection, saying he needed more privacy. Top Trump advisor Kellyanne Conway is also now off the Secret Service leash. Just this week, we learned Manafort had offered campaign updates to a Russian operative, perhaps in exchange for forgiving a $10 million debt. We learned that Bob Mueller got a warrant to see data that Facebook has on Russian ads and accounts aimed at influencing the election, and that Facebook has now complied with that warrant. We learned that Mueller has now interviewed his own boss, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, in the investigation of possible efforts by the president to obstruct justice. Rosenstein, who hired and could fire Mueller, wrote a memo giving one of the reasons for firing FBI Director James Comey. And we heard from Hillary Clinton that she would not rule out disputing the results of the 2016 election if the investigation shows that Russia's efforts go deeper than we already know. And all of this occurred in just one day after a week in which we learned the special counsel was turning the screws on Manafort and Trump's former national security advisor, Mike Flynn. Once again, we will take these developments one at a time, starting with the most recent news. It was back in July when federal agents chose not to knock on Paul Manafort's door or even knock down his front door. Instead, they picked the lock and entered quietly, stationing agents in rooms believed to contain data relevant to their investigation of Manafort's involvement with Russia and his various business dealings. And then they knocked on Manafort's bedroom door to let him know he had company. They gathered binders full of documents and offloaded copies of his computer files. They were so struck by Manafort's collection of expensive suits, they photographed the closet. And then special counsel Robert S. Mueller III told Manafort he would be facing indictment. Mueller's people had to convince the FISA court there was enough evidence of a crime to justify that search warrant. They also had to show the court reason to believe Manafort would try to destroy evidence relevant to prosecutors. Manafort's under investigation for money laundering, tax fraud, and failure to disclose his foreign lobbyist work. Manafort's business associates are being hit with grand jury subpoenas to tell what they know. 
Expert observers say Mueller's going after Manafort the way a prosecutor would go after a mobster. Mueller reportedly doesn't like long, drawn-out investigations. This is moving quickly. Mueller has resorted to shock and awe tactics to put all the pieces together in the Russia investigation. A deputy independent counsel in Bill Clinton's impeachment told the New York Times it's important early on to strike terror in the hearts of people. You want people saying to themselves, man, I'd better tell these guys the truth. The FISA court had heard of Manafort before because it had in 2014 issued a warrant for Manafort's phones to be wiretapped as the FBI looked at Manafort's consulting firms working on behalf of the former Russian-backed government of Ukraine. The FBI spent a lot of time watching the work of Paul Manafort, dating back years. But the Ukraine investigation never turned up any evidence, so that investigation was dropped early last year. But also sometime last year, the FBI launched a new investigation of Manafort and got a new wiretap warrant. This time, it was to investigate possible connections between the Trump campaign and Russia operatives. To get that warrant, the FBI had to show the FISA court evidence Manafort may have been acting as an agent for a foreign government. We don't know what the FBI and subsequently the special counsel have learned from this surveillance of Manafort, but we know this all happened during a period of time that Manafort continued to converse with Trump. They kept talking with each other until they were told by their respective lawyers they should stop. If there are recordings, Trump may be on those recordings. Neither the White House nor Manafort have any comment. Last week, confirming the accusations of Republicans, former National Security Advisor Susan Rice told the House Intelligence Committee that she did, she did unmask the names of Trump transition officials and associates who were caught up in U.S. intelligence surveillance. But even conservative Republicans, even South Carolina Congressman Trey Gowdy came out of that testimony saying that what Rice did this deviation from protocol was justified and that Rice had done nothing illegal. Republicans had suspected politics as the reason for the unmasking of Trump's people. Normally, the names of Americans overheard talking with foreigners are kept out of transcripts because intelligence is supposed to keep its hands off Americans, focusing only on the foreigners. But the law says Americans caught in U.S. surveillance can be unmasked, when it's necessary to make sense of the foreigner's conversation, especially if it's related to a criminal matter. Rice's real reason for the unmasking, as it turns out, was a very good one and very important to the Russia investigation. It goes like this. The crown prince of the United Arab Emirates came to the United States for a visit on December 16th of last year and met with Mike Flynn, Steve Bannon, and the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And there's nothing illegal or unusual or unethical about that because foreign officials often meet with an incoming administration. What is unusual, though, is that when a foreign official comes for any kind of visit, they check in with the U.S. government officials. In this case, that would have been the Obama administration's State Department. In all his other visits to the U.S., the Crown Prince checked in. On this one, one in which he met with Flynn, Bannon, and Kushner, he did not. The prince from the UAE, in effect, sneaked into this country. U.S. intelligence, thankfully, notices these kinds of things, so they kept a sharp eye on this unusual secret meeting in Trump Tower. And the FBI knows what the Washington Post reported in early April, that this same Arab prince had a meeting of his own in the Seychelles Island, not far from his own country, but also in the middle of the Indian Ocean. 
That two-day meeting included another prince, Eric Prince, the brother of Trump Education Secretary Betsy DeVos and the founder of Blackwater. He's a wealthy Trump supporter who was spotted at the Trump transition offices in that same December. The other attendee in the Seychelles Islands was a representative of Russian President Vladimir Putin. It was a way for a Trump donor to set up a back-channel communication between the new Trump administration and Russia. When confronted with this, then-White House spokesman Sean Spicer said, quote, We are not aware of any meetings, and Eric Prince has no role in the transition. Which we know is not true, since Prince had been seen at transition headquarters in New York. The FBI considers the Seychelles Islands meeting to be very important to the Russia investigation. That Trump Tower meeting, in which Flynn and company met with that Arab prince, was not Flynn's only involvement in the Middle East. On the list of things Mike Flynn didn't disclose on his White House security clearance application before becoming Trump's first national security advisor, that he had visited Saudi Arabia to promote a business deal that would have used Russian money to build nuclear power plants in the Middle East, most of them in oil-rich Saudi Arabia. Democrats from the House Oversight Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee have written special counsel Robert Mueller to say that Flynn's failure to disclose that Russian-backed nuclear power deal for Saudi Arabia broke the law, and for Mueller's convenience, they sent him the evidence. But the Wall Street Journal reports that Flynn didn't drop that plan at the White House door. The paper says Flynn continued his nuclear promotion while he worked in the White House, even though he swore on his disclosure statement he left it all behind. The Journal reports Flynn continued to serve as an envoy for a group of retired military officers who were in the business of promoting projects for American companies. The National Security Council's Ethics Office told Flynn to step away, and yet he continued, even using national security staff, taxpayer-funded, to help with his conflict of interest side job. And now, in Bob Mueller's hands, thanks to House investigators, are the interviews those investigators had earlier this summer with Flynn's business partners. Meanwhile, a House committee investigates Flynn's business dealings, including the one to use Russian money to give nuclear power to a country that practically floats on a sea of oil. And the special counsel has just hired a new investigator, a 16th investigator who specializes in money laundering cases. Retired Army Lieutenant General Michael Flynn is in a world of trouble, and Mueller no doubt hopes that Flynn will be a key witness in the Russia investigation. At the end of December, Flynn spoke with the Russian ambassador, again, they've spoken many times. Then White House spokesman Sean Spicer said the calls were not about sanctions, simply, quote, holiday greetings. But we now know that call was about lifting the sanctions on Russia over its invasion of Crimea and its interference in the election. And that conversation broke the law because it took place before Trump took office. Only the sitting government has a right to make deals, not the incoming government. Also on the list of things Flynn did not disclose, that he'd been paid by the Russians on three occasions, that he failed to get permission to talk with Russian officials during the campaign, that Flynn chose not to disclose his foreign contacts or his conversations with them. We know he lied to Vice President Mike Pence about his Russia meetings, even if Pence knew at the time that Flynn was lying. We also now know that Flynn didn't disclose that Russian-backed Saudi nuclear deal. General Flynn also made a half million dollars helping the Turkish government, even though he had failed to register as a foreign lobbyist, and that is also illegal. 
Now, Flynn's brother and sister have set up a legal defense fund to pay the general's huge and mounting legal bills. Flynn's siblings swear that no money will be accepted from any Trump source nor any foreign source. They're calling on veterans and others to donate, quote, whatever they can. The fund may also now have to cover Mike Flynn's son. Michael G. Flynn worked closely with his dad, joining him for that trip to Moscow in late 2015, where the senior Flynn would give a speech and be paid for it by Russia, including the airfare for father and son. The senior Flynn sat next to Vladimir Putin at the dinner table, led a standing ovation for him. That's on video, and you can see the younger Flynn in that same scene. The younger Flynn ran the day-to-day operations of his father's lobbying firm. How much trouble is son of Flynn in? Only special counsel Robert Mueller knows. Mueller also knows that by focusing on the general's kid, it's another way of turning up the heat on the general. The heat can't get much hotter for Mike Flynn. At some point soon, he may have to talk. We have also learned that the president is not happy with the Mueller investigation or the fact that Mueller was even chosen to be the special counsel who would investigate Russian interference with the election. Trump was so unhappy back in May when he heard that Mueller got the gig, he berated Attorney General Jeff Sessions in front of other officials. He scolded Sessions for recusing himself from the Russia investigation, which made possible the appointment of Mueller. It meant Trump could no longer control the investigation. Trump was so angry, he said Sessions should resign for his disloyalty, including a string of insults along the way. The color, what little there is of it, washed out of Sessions' face, and Sessions offered his resignation. Sessions later told friends it was the most humiliating experience of his public life. That offer was ultimately rejected, with the White House already losing people at a record rate through firings and resignations. Sessions resignation was rejected. Although the dressing down of Sessions is a juicy story for reporters and news consumers, it is also evidence of motive in an obstruction of justice investigation, which we know Mueller is also conducting. We've also learned that Mueller is asking the White House to interview Trump White House aides who were present when a statement was crafted to explain Don Jr.'s meeting with a Russian lawyer in Trump Tower. Mueller's investigators want to know how that statement was put together, who was involved, and whether the information omitted from that statement was left out intentionally or inadvertently. The statement claimed that the meeting was about Americans adopting Russian children when, in truth, it was to get dirt on Hillary. Emails show Don Jr. took the meeting eagerly and dragged Dad's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, into it, along with Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Trump's involvement in the crafting of the statement about that meeting opens the president to legal trouble, including, again, obstruction of justice, especially if Trump Jr. told his dad what the meeting was really about. Other White House lies include the reasons for firing FBI Director James Comey and about Mike Flynn's involvement with Russia. Now to Facebook. While turning up the heat on Mike Flynn and Paul Manafort, Mueller is also taking note of how social media allowed Russian trolls to influence voters in key districts. During the campaign, Facebook accepted rubles from Russian sources to run $100,000 worth of ads attacking Hillary Clinton through fake news articles. Facebook hosted some 470 fake accounts traced to Russian trolls during the campaign. And those accounts 
And those 3,000 ads targeted 70 million people in the U.S. If only a fraction of those people were influenced by those fake news reports, it would be enough to influence and change the vote. Bob Mueller is now investigating Facebook's role in the Russian attack on U.S. democracy and got warrants to see the information that Facebook has. The House and Senate Intelligence Committees are also investigating Facebook's role and focusing this week on Twitter, where more Russian trolling and fake news appeared. Congressional investigators are also looking into the roles played by Russia's propaganda networks, RT and Sputnik. Homeland Security has banned federal agencies from using the security software from the Russian-backed company known as Kaspersky Labs. Computer security experts say you would be wise to avoid it as well, considering Kaspersky's connections to Russian intelligence. The FBI and U.S. intelligence are specifically looking at how to prevent cyber meddling in next year's midterm elections and beyond. The Trump administration, meanwhile, has taken almost no action to either investigate past interference or prevent future attacks. Trump himself has called the Russia investigation fake news, a witch hunt, and a hoax and has threatened to shut down the Mueller probe if it delves into his family's finances, which it's starting to. But government officials intent on preventing future interference describe Mueller's focus on social media as red hot. And Facebook has now complied with those subpoenas, turning over the Russian-backed ads and details about the accounts that bought those ads. Facebook has also turned over data that will help Mueller's team determine how the ads were targeted at Facebook users in key districts and its promise to involve humans more in future ad sales. Hillary Clinton has come down hard on Facebook, which did not cooperate with House and Senate investigators and only turned over its data when faced with a court warrant. Facebook denied at first it had taken foreign money to run ads for Russian trolls, even though its financial records already showed the payments in rubles. It is illegal to take foreign money intended to influence an election, and Facebook appears to have been asleep at the switch. Since admitting it found evidence of Russian mischief, Facebook had been less than forthcoming with details or how investigators might go about getting them until now with a warrant. Lawmakers want to know how Russian trolls knew which districts to target in those ads and whether the trolls got help from inside the U.S., from inside the Trump campaign. Hillary Clinton has attacked Facebook for, quote, putting out all this fake news, all these negative stories that were untrue to divide people, end quote. She called on the company to be more transparent and for U.S. investigators to come down hard on Facebook and other tech companies who were complicit in Russia's interference in our election. Clinton's calling on Facebook to, quote, own up to the role that it played while Facebook tried to keep all of this out of the public eye. Clinton also now says that if Russian interference goes deeper than we already know, she would not rule out questioning the legitimacy of the 2016 election. Meanwhile, back on Capitol Hill, a proposal for a 9-11-type commission to investigate the Russia attack and to see how future attacks could be prevented. Such a commission would have a broader reach than the various congressional investigations currently underway. Lobbyists can now make anonymous donations to help pay the bills from all the lawyers protecting the president and his top aides. Lobbyist donations to legal defense funds had always been prohibited under the rules of the ethics office inherited by Donald Trump. 
Rather than use the bureaucrat next in line, Trump chose his own guy to head the new ethics office, and voila, the rule changed. And just in time. Several White House officials are rightly worried about those legal bills. Even the vice president now has a legal fund. And thanks to his boss's ethics, the vice president can now take money from lobbyists to help fill the coffers of his legal fund. People who bought Make America Great Again hats or simply made donations to the already established re-election campaign for Donald Trump awoke yesterday morning to learn that their money will instead pay lawyers. Presidential campaigns have spent money on lawyers before, and it's not illegal. But this is the first time in modern history a sitting president has used campaign money to pay for the lawyers defending him and his family in a criminal investigation. Trump's lawyer tells the taxpayers it's none of our business how the president's legal bills are being paid. But we now know that Trump is using money donated to his re-election campaign and money donated to the Republican Party to pay his lawyers. In August alone, the Republican National Committee kicked in nearly a quarter million dollars. The lawyer who said it's none of our business has gotten over $100,000 just from the RNC. And the party has paid another of Trump's lawyers, nearly 150000 and there are other lawyers. Again, that's just August. September's nearly over, and Trump first acquired legal counsel to help him fight the Russia thing back in May, over four months ago. This is adding up. The Trump campaign has already paid $50,000 to the law firm representing Don Jr. in the Russia probe. Trump's campaign has spent over $4 million in money that donors thought was going to Trump's re-election effort. Trump started his re-election campaign the day he took office, two years earlier than any other president, setting him up instantly with millions of dollars at his fingertips. And in what may seem to be a related matter, Donald Trump Jr., also the focus of Russia investigators, has fired his Secret Service detail. He told the agency early last week he needs more privacy. Trump Jr.'s family will still get protection. Top Trump advisor Kellyanne Conway is also now without Secret Service escorts. Trump ordered it for her after she got death threats in the early days of the administration, but legally she was never entitled to Secret Service protection. Although it feels to those of us following the Russia probe like we're nearing the climax of an exciting detective mystery, closer to making America normal again, the rest of America shrugs. A new Politico Harvard poll shows that only 54% of Democrats call the Russia investigation extremely important. Just over half of Democrats. Fewer than one in five independent voters would call it extremely important. And only one in ten Republicans would use those words. North Korea. A bad week for race relations. The latest natural disasters and my own hurricane diary. Plus, Bob Seska looks out for your health care after this. Sure, I missed having electricity and hot water and internet during the storm, but I missed Amazon almost as much, and I'm not kidding. I started a list during what became a four-day siege of things I wished I'd had on hand during it all. Just before the storm, I did have the foresight to get a five-gallon igloo cooler for storing and dispensing water. Amazon Prime's two-day delivery got me that cooler before the hurricane hit. Since the power and the internet returned, I have ordered a replacement flashlight, a pile of Amazon batteries, a battery charger, a battery-operated fan, a cable to charge my phone from a solar-powered radio, and more. What do you need 
if an act of nature heads your way, no matter where you are in the country or in the world, are you ready? Amazon helped and is helping me, and it can help you too. And speaking of help, you can power this report by getting what you need through my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. If you believe in what we're doing here, go to buzzburbank.com, click on the Amazon link, bookmark the page, and make it one of your favorites. Whether you're already a Prime member or you're shopping Amazon for the first time, going through that link, even just that first time, helps sustain this program. Amazon has nearly everything you need right to your door and in two days or less for Prime members. Plus, you get Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership, along with music and books and more. And please, use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, church, or some other organization. To those of you who already shopped through my link, thank you, thank you, thank you. But... If Amazon's not right for you, you can also support this program by clicking on the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. Our neighbor to the south is in a national state of mourning after the deadliest earthquake in 30 years. Well over 200 people died in the 7.1 quake, which came just hours after an earthquake drill in Mexico City. And 32 years to the day since another earthquake in that area took over 6,000 lives. Frantic rescue efforts are still underway with scores of people trapped beneath collapsed buildings. Soccer stadiums are being used as relief centers, including one that was to be used Saturday for an NFL game. Puerto Rico and the 3.5 million Americans who live there are in the dark losing 100% of their electrical power after a direct hit from a Category 4 hurricane. The fear, now that Maria has passed Puerto Rico, is focused on flooding and mudslides. People are being told to stay indoors at least through today. At least four people have died in that latest hurricane. The storm had already battered the Virgin Islands right on the heels of the devastation there from Hurricane Irma. The U.S. has already offered help. As Hurricane Irma crossed the Leeward Islands, its winds were whipping around the eye at 185 to 225 miles an hour. It was the biggest to arrive through the Atlantic Ocean ever. The fact that Irma sustained that strength for so long, longer than any hurricane before it, had people rightly concerned. The storm covered 70,000 square miles, considerably bigger than England. The Category 5 storm laid waste to Barbuda, St. Martin, and the Virgin Islands, and then it hit Cuba, the country's first Category 5 since 1924. At Cuba's devastating expense, the storm was beginning to finally weaken a bit. And then Irma made the expected turn to the north, along one of the dozens of spaghetti-strand predictions that had ultimately had it either headed for Maine or Arkansas or anywhere in between. Florida was the most likely target, and the question, certainly in the mind of a certain shrimp boat captain, was would it go up the east coast or west coast of Florida? The storm was a Category 4 by the time it crossed the islands we call the Keys with 130-mile-an-hour winds. It was down to a 3 by the time it made its continental landfall, wind speed 115, although it was gusting it up to 142 miles an hour in Naples. It was the first time Florida had been hit with a major hurricane in 12 years, and this one landed in exactly the same spot at the southern tip of the state. It spun off at least a dozen tornadoes. By then, the winds and the storm surge were still worrisome, but down to five feet, four feet, and less. Some parts of Florida got a foot and a half of rain. I recorded only five and a half inches by the time the storm had cleared the Tampa Bay region. 
but there was flooding as far north as Atlanta and North Carolina, and ultimately it spread rain from Arkansas to Virginia. It was the first tropical storm warning ever issued for the city of Atlanta. Scientists, by the way, say climate change did not cause Hurricane Irma and the still-not-forgotten Harvey, but they say climate change did make those storms more severe. Some 70 people, as I mentioned, perished in Hurricane Irma, 32 of them here in the U.S. It did $100 million damage to Naples alone. 65% of the homes in the Keys were damaged, 25% of them destroyed. Florida, where the economy had been growing at twice the rate of the national average, endured maybe $83 billion in damage when you include lost revenue, destroyed crops, closed businesses, and a temporary stop to tourism. For 17 million customers in Florida and its border states beyond, the power went out. It stayed out for days for some. Others are still waiting. Utility workers from across the country came here in Florida to help, and we thank them for their very hard work. Not far from this studio, air-conditioned tents were set up as temporary housing for those overheated and exhausted out-of-state utility workers. The story that got the most attention after Irma had passed, and is still a developing story, was about the heat-related deaths of nine people in a nursing home in Hollywood, Florida. An investigation is underway into a nursing home that's now closed by state order. When it was in operation, it got terrible reviews and did poorly on inspections. But there are also now questions about what state officials might have done differently. Florida Governor Rick Scott over the weekend announced new rules requiring nursing homes to have enough fuel and generators to run for at least 96 hours, specifically to keep the air conditioning on during an extended power outage. And the homes have now less than 60 days to get that generator and fuel and and to have all of it inspected by the state's fire marshal. Nursing homes that don't comply face fines and or the loss of their licenses. The nursing home industry is balking at the new rules. One owner saying the governor means well, but doesn't realize the time, expense, and bureaucratic difficulty in tripling or quadrupling a nursing home's generating capacity. New legislation's been introduced, but the last time that happened, state lawmakers caved to the nursing home industry. The Rehabilitation Center at Hollywood Hills, as it calls itself, lost its power and relied on fans with an air-conditioned hospital directly across the street. Why the home's residents were not evacuated is part of this investigation. Public anger and the anger of the victims' families was immediately directed at this nursing home. The home and its actions are now being investigated, as well as its inactions. The home is now defending itself, claiming it made multiple calls for help from the power company, several county and state agencies, and even called the governor himself and got no help even though the power company assured it that help was on the way. Why help didn't come is also under investigation. Florida Power and Light has no comment, but says in an emergency such as this, you should always call 911. Whether anyone called 911 is also under investigation. And lawsuits are being filed. Had Hurricane Irma drifted out into the Gulf, it would have gathered more of that unusually warm ocean water and intensified. It could have come ashore, where I'm sitting right now. Being from Kansas originally, this was all new to me. This would be my first hurricane, and probably not my last. Our own preparations began with the purchase of a single-story house about 17 feet above sea level, providing protection from even a 15-foot storm surge. The insurance company made us install a new roof, and although it wasn't something for which we had budgeted, 
it has already justified its expense. The tiles and the new longer nails that hold them in place can withstand winds of up to 130 miles an hour. That's about the strength of Irma when it made its second and final landfall in South Florida. The house also came with hurricane shutters, corrugated steel plates to cover windows and doors to protect them from projectiles carried by hurricane winds. We must have turned a thousand wing nuts in the half day we spent before the storm putting up those shutters. We had gotten flood insurance even though we weren't in a flood zone, but we were in Florida, and that, we now know, is reason enough. But before that, two Mondays ago, we read all we could about hurricane preparedness, what you should have and what you should do. We did as many of those things as we could, if it made any sense at all. I'll spare you the countless details of that. We stocked up on non-perishable food and water and ice. Next time I'd have more ice. For those of us who don't have generators, it's a lifesaver when the food in the freezer begins to thaw. We brought in everything that was outside the house that could become a deadly or damaging projectile in 100-mile-an-hour winds. Outdoor lighting, potted plants, clocks and decorations, and so many things. Anything that couldn't or shouldn't come indoors was secured somehow or tossed into the pool where it would be safe underwater. At the last minute, we learned of the availability of sandbags. To keep high water from entering through the garage, we picked up enough for us and a few that a neighbor needed to finish her sandbagging. A common salutation throughout the preparation days was, be safe, and people helped other people more than usual. I've never bagged sand before. The bags and the sand are provided by the county. It's four shovel scoops to a bag. Sandbags are heavier after they've been rain-soaked than when you shovel dry sand into them, the more you know. By Saturday, we were as ready as we could be, and as the storm appeared to be headed our way, we learned that some good friends who lived nearby were being evacuated. They were welcome with us, of course, provided they came with foods we could use in case of a power outage, which we had as soon as the eye of the storm passed overhead at about 1 a.m. Monday. Some of us, exhausted from preparation and stress, slept through the storm. Some did not. This small house was now occupied by seven adults and three cats from three different households, and we sheltered in place, waiting. Our guests said they felt safe. To pass the time, we ate well because one of our guests wanted to burn off her nervous energy by cooking, which she loves. We played card games and board games, including a 1950 edition of Clue, and checked on the weather occasionally. Watching that coverage constantly will drive you insane, even if you're in the storm's path. And the storm wasn't as loud as I expected. Maybe the shutters helped. Maybe I slept more than I knew. By morning, it was already warm indoors. Not as warm as it had been before the storm, but still warm. Although it took a few hours, the wind had died down enough to begin to remove a few shutters and open some windows. In my neighborhood, the damage was mostly limited to one street lamp and fragile tree branches that were piled shin-deep across all of our lawns. And then the cleanup began. We did what we could without power in the days that followed, and that was itself a considerable effort, as exhausting as the preparation had been. There is, by the way, something about a challenge of this kind that makes a person muster strength and energy and endurance they didn't know they had. For several days after the storm, our meals were prepared on an outdoor grill. Battery-powered LED camera lights from my studio lighted our evenings for as long as we could stay awake. Mail and newspaper delivery resumed on Tuesday. The Sunday paper finally arrived on Tuesday to warn that Irma was coming, days after it had passed. And as much as I missed the technology, I also embraced and enjoyed this semi-rustic life of cooking outdoors and hearing night sounds until the generators came on. 
We slept by a window with a tiny battery-powered fan in a room farther away from the noise of a nearby generator. Several generators ran for days, the closest one, the noisiest. That's a debate for another day. Floridians either love their generators or hate the noise when a power failure forces them to reopen their windows and to try to rest from all that hard work. But as I wrote all of this down, poolside, about a mile from the beach, I knew that the brief concern and the week of hard work were worth it. While thousands were forced to flee, at least temporarily, millions of us, nearly all of us, have decided to stay in the Sunshine State. Because it's worth it. One more note I want to share. As we began to run out of ice in the middle of last week, a desperate search began to find more. The local stores were without power. We could have driven a long way to buy more ice. Or, as we found out, we could get as much as we needed free from a local fish market. It was, of course, the same fish market that had lost a fisherman, a shrimp boat, and a cat named Motorboat. While they were grieving their loss when no one else had ice or charged for it, this place was giving it away. Because whether it's giving shelter to friends or a helping hand or just ice, people help people. In Miami, it was a nun in full habit, armed with a chainsaw, clearing trees out of a roadway. If you can, by all means, donate to the victims of all the recent disasters. The Trump administration continues to send mixed signals on the battle to curb man-made climate change. On Sunday, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said the U.S. could stay in the Paris Climate Accord, quote, under the right conditions. He said the U.S. will talk about what it can do in that battle. On that same day, White House Chief of Staff H.R. McMaster denied that Trump is reconsidering pulling out of the accord. He repeated Trump's insistence the U.S. would only stay on board if it were allowed to renegotiate the deal. Go with McMaster on this one, over Tillerson, who remains shockingly out of the loop. Fixing our health care system is still understandably the top priority of voters in the U.S. A new Harvard poll for Politico shows this to be true among Democrats and Republicans, but for different reasons. 51% of Democrats say job one is to lower the cost of prescription drugs, but 54% of Republicans believe the first step should be repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, something their Republican leaders in government have failed to achieve so far. The next nine days are crucial for your health care. The plan you heard about to simply fix the Affordable Care Act, well, that's been scrapped as Republicans became enamored with a new bill that would repeal but not replace Obamacare. This Republican Congress, having failed so many times before, is making that last-ditch, last-minute run. The latest proposal already has real momentum, and again, the vote will be close. Vice President Mike Pence has left the U.N. meeting in New York to return to D.C. to be on hand as the tie-breaking vote, if needed. Here, with more on what the bill does and its chances for passage, Salon.com writer Bob Seska. Thanks, Buzz. The zombie is back. Just when you thought the crusade to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act was dead, beheaded and dismembered by Lisa Murkowski, John McCain, and Susan Collins, along with the entire Democratic caucus, we're back here again. So grab your phones and your town hall disagree signs and get ready to do battle. The new attempt to roll back America's health care system to its pre-2010 nightmarish status comes to us this time from Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy. 
We first heard rumors about the Graham-Cassidy legislation back in July, but given Mitch McConnell's announcement that it was time to move on from the dual failures to overturn President Obama's signature legacy that provided affordable, comprehensive health insurance to 20 million Americans, we thought we were mostly safe. It turns out the Republicans have nine more days in which to pass a partial repeal of the ACA using the reconciliation rules of the Senate that allow for certain budget-related bills to pass with a simple majority, avoiding the 60-vote filibuster threshold. In case you're unfamiliar with the bill, the simplest way to describe it is to say it's nearly exactly the same as previous attempts to repeal key provisions of the ACA. Number one, it defunds both the marketplace subsidies and the Medicaid expansion. Funding for both the marketplace subsidies for low-income Americans, along with funding for Medicaid, will be cut by $300 billion over the next 10 years. By 2020, funding will be replaced with block grants, allowing states to reallocate funds to other non-healthcare-related projects if they want to. By 2027, all additional funding, including the block grants, would be eliminated, leaving us without subsidies or the Medicaid expansion. Essentially, we'd be back to pre-2010 insurance. Number two, it defunds Planned Parenthood. The GOP's white whale will finally be harpooned if Graham-Cassidy passes. However, this provision might be a poison pill forcing moderate Republicans like Murkowski and Collins to vote against it. Number three, it eliminates the individual and employer mandates. By doing so, customers with pre-existing conditions might be priced out of the market since sick or injured people will be allowed to game the system by only purchasing insurance when they need it, canceling when they're better. Number four, it weakens pre-existing conditions coverage. It gives states permission to allow insurers to charge higher premiums for anyone with past or current illnesses or disabilities. Number five, tens of millions would lose coverage. While the CBO won't have a score ready for Graham-Cassidy before the end of September, previous repeal bills would have forced upwards of 32 million Americans to lose coverage. Again, it's worth mentioning here that there won't be a CBO score issued before the window for a reconciliation vote expires, which means the Senate will likely vote on this bill without the CBO's analysis. In other words, we won't know the full extent of the damage until after the bill is passed. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell is rumored to be narrowing the floor debate on the bill to just several minutes, while the ACA itself was debated for roughly 60 hours between 2009 and 2010. The upside is this. It's possible that both moderates and Freedom Caucus House members will object to this legislation for similar reasons as previous iterations. Therefore, it's possible that the House will demand a different version of the bill, forcing the Senate to vote again, along with the possible interjections of a conference committee. Of course, this doesn't mitigate the urgency of defeating Graham-Cassidy, since it's also possible that Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy have the votes to pass the bill as is, which case it'll go directly to Donald Trump's desk for his signature and the world's most obnoxious beer party. As with previous bills, the most confounding aspect of the repeal process is that it would harm red states more than blue states on a per capita basis. In other words, the first states to decline to cover pre-existing conditions would be red states due to the nonsensical political drive to undermine all things Obama. Thus, red state voters who hate the ACA because of its linkage to Obama would be among the first to lose their insurance coverage. Naturally, though, they'd blame Obama and the ACA rather than the GOP members of Congress who screwed their own voters. In case you're wondering whether it's time to panic, the answer is abso-freaking-lutely. But we need to use the panic and manifest it with collective strength and determination to stop this bill dead in its tracks. Not only will doing so protect tens of millions of Americans, but it'll thwack the Senate Republicans and the Trump administration with yet another major loss despite the GOP's majorities. 
and it'll be just as the 2010 midterm season begins to ramp up. So now is the time. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Catch him at Salon.com every Tuesday and Thursday and on the Bob Seska Show here at RealmNetwork.com. I'm proud to be one of the regular guests on that program, and I'll join Bob again this coming Tuesday. Floridians were busy bracing for a hurricane when the whole country got the shocking news that Equifax had allowed hackers to get a lot of crucial data on 143 million Americans. Canadians were exposed as well, along with a half million Brits. We now know it happened because Equifax failed to keep its protective software up to date. It's that simple. And in so doing, they exposed names, social security numbers, birth dates, addresses, and even driver's license numbers. The company learned of the breach months ago, but waited till last week to announce it. Shortly after the FBI and the Federal Trade Commission opened their investigations into this carelessness, and Congress prepared to launch its own investigation, came word that heads were rolling at Equifax. The head of technology, out. The head of security, out. But Equifax is facing problems now of Wells Fargo proportions. Now that it's been learned, the company's contract with its customers includes a clause that says they can't sue Equifax. But there's nothing that says the Attorney General of the state of Massachusetts cannot sue, and that's exactly what she's doing. And the company response to the data breach has been less than impressive, although it says it's investigating internally and cooperating with the feds. And there's more. Three Equifax executives sold their stock in the company just days after the second of two breaches. If they sold those shares because they knew the breaches might damage the company, then they are guilty of insider trading. And that's being investigated by the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department. In the North Korea story, the week began with a unanimous vote by the United Nations Security Council to impose even more sanctions on North Korea, trying to choke off its income and its supplies. They are the harshest sanctions ever imposed, and still less than what the U.S. wanted. North Korea responded with a threat of unbearable consequences. But the bigger news was Trump's speech at the U.N. General Assembly, making threats against North Korea, Iran, and Islamic terrorists. We will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea, said Trump, if the United States is, quote, forced to defend itself and its allies. Rocket Man, he said, proud of one of his clever new nicknames, Rocket Man is on a suicide mission. He also again threatened Venezuela for its human rights violations. And he again slammed the Iran nuclear deal, calling it one of the worst and most one-sided transactions the U.S. has ever entered into, adding, you haven't heard the last on it, believe me. Iran's president has responded to that, saying America will pay a high cost if Trump scraps the nuke deal, saying that no one will ever trust an agreement with the U.S. after that. We now know that there are at least 21 Americans who've been harmed in some way by mysterious sonic attacks on those serving at the embassy in Havana, Cuba. And there is once again reason to believe Cuba is not behind those attacks, Again, raising the possibility it was a third party yet to be identified. Maybe an opposition party in Cuba. Maybe Russians. We don't know. Cuban President Raul Castro was visibly shaken when he heard his country was being blamed for the attacks, since he and his country very much want warmer relations with the U.S., not the cold relationship of the past. Castro called into his office the U.S. envoy in Havana to talk face-to-face. Our envoy says Castro was genuinely baffled 
by the attacks and concerned about them. Cuban and American operatives have for years played cruel tricks on one another, but neither side ever inflicted any harm. Sometimes it was simple as using a toilet and not flushing while the envoy wasn't home. And Castro did not take the usual position of a Cuban leader, which is indignation that such an accusation would be made. He didn't do that. Castro even invited FBI agents to come to Havana to investigate, and they did. Publicly, we still don't know what device or devices caused illness and hearing loss in our people there, or where those devices are located, much less who planted them, who targeted them, and who threw the switch to engage them. The FBI went and swept for those devices and didn't find any. Here in the States, where Republicans have long been opposed to the warmer relations with Cuba that Obama initiated, Cuba's being slammed for, in Marco Rubio's words, not protecting our diplomats. And now Trump's Secretary of State Rex Tillerson says he's considering closing the embassy in Cuba that was just reopened by President Obama last year. It's what the Republicans have wanted since the day that embassy opened. Republicans and Russians, who also oppose warmer relations between the U.S. and Cuba. It still has to be melded with the House version, but the Senate's passed a new budget for the Pentagon, totaling about $700 billion. It gives more money than Trump had requested for missile defense. It includes a 2.1% raise for the troops. The budget includes $60 billion for the fund that keeps running the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other places. Defense Secretary Mattis has just announced we're sending another 3,000 troops to Afghanistan, raising the total to 14,000. Of the hundreds of amendments added to this defense funding bill, the one that would have slowed Trump's ban on transgenders serving in the military was not included. While the Pentagon tries to decide how to implement Trump's ban on transgender troops and when to do it, it's letting the trans soldiers it has stay on. New guidance from Defense Secretary Mattis tells currently serving transgender troops they can re-enlist if they plan to do so within the next few months. Those in Congress, including veteran John McCain, are working, meanwhile, to reverse Trump's ban. No state is doing more to fight the Trump agenda than California. In a series of Trump-countering moves, state lawmakers have passed a bill requiring all future presidential candidates to release their tax returns in order to get on the California ballot. That is huge. California is crucial to the popular vote, and several states tend to follow California's lead. In fact, several other states are considering similar release-your-taxes-to-get-on-the-ballot proposals. Trump, of course, is still insisting on hiding his tax returns from the voters, unlike any other modern president. California lawmakers have also approved a bill that would make the entire state a sanctuary for undocumented immigrants. California's biggest cities, like cities across the country, had already declared themselves sanctuaries. The new state law bans police from asking about immigration status, bans officers from turning a person over to the feds without a warrant or probable cause for criminal charges. Trump's Justice Department had threatened to cut off federal grant money to sanctuary cities, But a U.S. District Court in Illinois has ruled that the Justice Department cannot do that, as had a district court in California. The rulings were the result of lawsuits brought by officials in both states against the Trump stand on immigrants. Cities and states are not the only ones refusing to cooperate with the feds on this. The Motel 6 chain says it will no longer share information about its guests with federal immigration agents. That after Trump's immigration authorities arrested at least 20 people at two Motel 6s in Latino neighborhoods in Arizona. 
The immigration agents were acting on a tip from a clerk at a front desk at one of those Motel 6 locations. Motel 6's corporate headquarters has now issued a directive that its clerks never again call in immigration, and it is apologizing for what has happened. As for the border wall, we're still hearing from Trump occasionally that it will be built, but we're hearing it less, and we're hearing more from his administration officials that a wall is not as important as just tougher border security. Do Americans want the Trump wall? No. That new Harvard survey for Politico shows that only 6% of Democrats support the wall and fewer than a third of all Republicans support the wall. So what about Republicans in Congress who'd be asked to pay for it? Well, the answer there is no, even louder. Fewer than one in four Republican lawmakers want to pay for the wall. The wall was one of Trump's biggest and most popular campaign promises. And now even he seems to be backing away from it. A week ago today, Trump repeated his belief that both sides were to blame in Charlottesville, as if white supremacists represent a legitimate side. Referring to those protesting the Nazis and Klansmen, Trump again cited what he calls some pretty bad dudes, some very bad people. And I mention that for context in talking about what has happened in the U.S. since Trump repeated his equalization of racists and those who oppose them. First, the Justice Department announced this week it will not bring charges against the six Baltimore police officers for the death of Freddie Gray two years ago. This Justice Department said there was insufficient evidence. Baltimore itself had dropped charges against three of those officers while the other three were acquitted. Gray died of a broken neck after being taken into custody. The NAACP responded to the failed cases against the officers, saying, Spines do not break without cause. And then from St. Louis came word that white former police officer Jason Stockley had been acquitted after he killed black motorist Anthony Lamar Smith six years ago, long before the killing of Mike Brown in the St. Louis suburb of Ferguson. The judge who handed down that verdict had sided with Stockley's claim that the gun killing was self-defense. The city did not take well to that verdict, which set off days of peaceful demonstration and nights of trouble Some protesters held hands and prayed, others threw water bottles at police and rocks at the mayor's house. Over several nights, scores of people would be arrested in St. Louis after widespread vandalism to a police car, stores, and businesses. And then came the shocking news from Atlanta, where a campus cop shot to death a student on campus. The student wouldn't drop a knife, a flip-open multi-tool, actually, with a very short blade, The student was essentially unarmed. Yet another police car went up in flames after dozens of protesters marched to the Georgia Tech police headquarters. It appears those who started the fire, by the way, were not students, but outsiders. And in the midst of all of that, police in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, arrested a 23-year-old white supremacist after the racially motivated murders of at least two black men. Kenneth James Gleans, who had a copy of a Hitler speech in his home, now faces two first-degree murder charges. He's one of the president's two sides. The return of Sean Spicer, toys in the news, and genital entrapment in the third and final segment up next. With everything going on these days, and there is so much, it's easy to forget stuff, including birthdays and anniversaries. Was it your sister this time, your mom, your spouse? With ProFlowers.com, you can schedule their gift ahead of time, any date you wish, and get back to your life. It's a special gift of beauty right to their door without costing a fortune. 
And with Pro Flowers, it's always a perfect gift. Guaranteed fresh for seven days or your money back, and they're not kidding about that. I've used Pro Flowers time and again, and they have never let me or her down. She's always delighted when that box from Pro Flowers arrives at the door. And right now, because you listen to this report, you can save 10 bucks on any order of $29 or more if you enter the code R-E-L-M when you check out at ProFlowers.com. Pro Flowers for as little as 19 bucks when you type in the code R-E-L-M in the upper right corner. And that $10 off also applies to a range of flowers and plants, including a dozen red roses or their famous 100 Blooms bouquet. And if you do forget a birthday or anniversary or forget just about anything, apologize with flowers and save 10 bucks and help power this show with the code R-E-L-M at proflowers.com. Thank you for using my sponsors and for also supporting this free news through the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. Former Press Secretary Sean Spicer left the White House over the summer, very upset that Trump had hired Anthony Scaramucci as Spicer's new boss for the job of communications director. Spicer resurfaced behind a lectern that rolled out onto the stage at Sunday's Emmy Awards ceremony and shouted that this was the biggest Emmy audience ever. The gag came seven months after Spicer tore into reporters for questioning his claim that Trump's inauguration crowd was bigger than Obama's, which was far from true. Everyone knows press secretaries speak for their bosses and try to keep their own views to themselves. That's their job. And Spicer did his job, no matter how incredible the claims he made or was told to make. Leaving a press secretary job frees a person to speak their minds, and Spicy was at the Emmys to show he was willing and available to do just that. He's going to need an income, after all, and interview and book deals and speaking engagements might fill that need. So there was Spicer wheeling out onto the Emmy stage, a la Melissa McCarthy, on Saturday Night Live, causing gasps of shock and awe across the land. And that appearance set off a firestorm of controversy between those who thought it was a brilliant moment in comedy and those who thought it glorified someone who knowingly lied to the public, the voters, and the taxpayers. Whether Spicer's been glorified remains to be seen. He may see it as a chance to reform his image. When asked the morning after the Emmys if he regretted criticizing accurate news accounts of Trump's inauguration, he said, of course I do, absolutely. But Spicer did tell lies for seven months and took money for it, even as the lies made him a national laughingstock as fodder for Saturday Night Live. He reportedly wore fake facial hair as a disguise on his flight to Los Angeles for the Emmys. Depending on how things go, he may want to keep that disguise handy. And before Spicer went from politics to TV, Trump went from TV to politics. It has not been a graceful transition for Trump. He likes to brag when he believes he's being presidential, but continues to pull his schoolyard bully stunts. Sunday morning, Trump tweeted a doctored, edited gif that made it appear his golf swing had resulted in the ball hitting Hillary Clinton and knocking her to the ground. Video of Trump's swing had been spliced with video of Clinton tripping and falling as she had boarded a jet during her tenure as Secretary of State. The ball to her back was superimposed using computer animation. It was trolling by the guy who won the election, at least in the Electoral College. It seemed to say it's okay for a winner to pick on a loser. It seemed to say it's okay for a man to knock a person, a woman, to the ground. And it went out to his 38 million Twitter followers, this video retweeted 
by the most powerful man in the free world after it had been posted by one of his rabid supporters. It was back in March that Trump told rabid supporter and Fox host Sean Hannity, at the right time, I will be so presidential, you'll call me and say, Donald, you have to stop that. I will be so presidential, said Trump, you will be bored. When he's been caught in that lie, he's answered, it's modern day presidential. It isn't. It's just Trumpidential. And it wasn't even a joke. Asked about retweeting similar stuff a year ago, Trump replied, I retweet for a reason. It was in this past week that New Hampshire became the 22nd state in the union to decriminalize possession of small amounts of marijuana. It no longer means prison, as it did as recently as last year. It means that 80% of the cases on the New Hampshire books right now will never go to court. With the holiday season already on the minds of retail stores, Toys R Us has filed for bankruptcy protection. The toy companies and their distributors have been stopping shipments to the retail chain, while Toys R Us tries to refinance $5 billion in debts that it's carried for over 10 years. Nearly a half billion of the debts come due next year. The company's hired a financial firm to help it reorganize as the weeks approach in which it normally does nearly half the business it does all year. There is hope for Toys R Us because profits and earnings there are as high as they have ever been despite fierce competition from other retailers, including those online. It's time again for the annual competition for the toys of our childhood to get a shot at the National Toy Hall of Fame. A dozen toys have been nominated this year, but only two or three will make it in this year. Matchbox Cars are on the list of nominees this time, along with My Little Pony, the board game Risk, the Wiffle Ball, the Pez Dispenser, Transformers, the card game Uno, the Magic 8-Ball, the plastic play food that went with play kitchens, the do-it-yourself paper airplane, and Sandbox Sand. The winners will be announced November 9th at the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. Past nominees that could someday still win the honor include Rock'em Sock'em Robots, Nerf Balls, Pinball Machines, the board game Clue, Nerf Balls, and Bubble Wrap. It was the top movie this past weekend for the second week in a row, this time with $60 million in ticket sales. It made $117 million in its first weekend, the biggest horror film opening in history for Stephen King or anybody. Passings in the past week include 91-year-old actor Harry Dean Stanton, who appeared in movies and shows ranging from Big Love to Pretty in Pink, from Cool Hand Luke to Alien. Stanton also had a role in Twin Peaks, as did actor Miguel Ferrar, and although it was never filmed, singer David Bowie had a role as well. And all three of those men have died recently from cancer. And actor Frank Vincent has died at 78 during surgery after a heart attack. He played Phil Leotardo on The Sopranos, but also appeared in Goodfellas, Casino, Raging Bull, and a couple of Spike Lee films. And legendary boxer Jake LaMotta is the subject of the movie Raging Bull. He's died at the age of 95. LaMotta learned boxing in a reformatory where he served time for attempted burglary, describing himself later as a good-for-nothing bum kid. In 1960, LaMotta admitted he had intentionally lost a fight to regain his middleweight crown, although that loss was also cause for an organized crime investigation. LaMotta would later be an abusive husband. 
He says the movie made him look bad. And then he says he realized it was true. Jeffrey Sandusky, the son of sex abuser Jerry Sandusky, is also going to prison. Jeffrey pleaded guilty this past week to all 14 of the child abuse charges he was facing. Those charges include soliciting sex from a girl under 16 and soliciting child pornography. Martin Shkreli is now behind bars. He's the smirky young billionaire who jacked the price of a life-saving drug because he could. His $5 million bail was revoked last week after he offered his Facebook followers a $5,000 reward for a strand of Hillary Clinton's hair to be snatched during her book tour. Prosecutors say Shkreli has a habit of harassing women online. Shkreli says his Clinton hair bounty was just a joke. If police saw a utility pole on the back of a big flatbed truck, they might not give it a second look. But put a utility pole on top of your mid-sized SUV and you will be stopped for questioning, even in Florida. Sheriff's officers in Jacksonville believe it was a pole that fell in Hurricane Irma, a pole that cost $2,500. The two men they cuffed and seated on a curb shirtless told the officers the pole was lying on the ground near a road, so they were, they said, moving it to a safer location. Occasionally, a government worker, a civil servant, will stick their hand into the community cookie jar and use taxpayer funds for themselves. In Garland County, Arkansas, 44-year-old courthouse assistant Christy Lynn Goss is the one now facing up to 20 years in prison for embezzlement. She allegedly stole $200,000, which she used for a lot of personal purchases. She paid some bills, bought some clothing, tickets to Razorbacks games, a diamond bracelet, and for her dog, she bought pet insurance and a tuxedo for her dog. When you're on the run and hiding from the cops, it is perhaps appropriate to think about a new career. That's what was on the mind of 26-year-old Jose Jimenez of Lawrence, Massachusetts, up around the border of New Hampshire. Police were looking to arrest Jimenez for assaulting a cop when he was stopped for speeding recklessly on a revoked driver's license. The officers say they saw Jimenez run from his Toyota Camry into a local business. The company's security video, however, shows Jimenez calmly walking in, calmly. Cool as a cucumber, says the boss who met him. I introduced myself. He introduced himself to me, says the business manager. Cool as a cucumber. No sweaty hands. Clean shirt. Pretty well groomed. Jimenez then reportedly asked if the company was hiring, and a job interview ensued. The eight-minute interview went so well, the boss handed Jimenez an application. And that's when they both saw the police cars pull up and the police dogs run out of those cars. The cops burst in with the words, you didn't think we were going to find you, did you? A tussle ensued, but Jimenez was arrested, of course, and didn't get the job, of course. When you're on the run and hiding from the cops, maybe too soon to think about a new career, or too late. But you'll get some time to think about it. There's a house for sale in Lansing, Michigan, and the sign out front touts the fact that the buyers would have, quote, quiet neighbors. And the Quiet Neighbors sign has an arrow that points directly across the street to a cemetery. Quoting the realtor, if you can't have a bit of fun, there's not much point to life. When a home in Cleveland was burgled, the thief took the TVs and computers, of course, and a miniature pet pig. 
He's part of our family, says the pig's owner. Keep the electronics, she says, but don't take somebody's pet. The pig's name is Spam. And owner Valerie Couch says whoever took him has their hands full, quoting her, he's a spitfire. And finally, people, the vast majority of the men, sometimes get things stuck on or in their most private areas. We've recounted some of these before, more to our amusement than to our surprise. Got a new one for you. Firefighters in Worms, Germany, were called upon to remove one such object from a man at a local gymnasium. It took them three hours of cutting with a hydraulic saw and a grinder. The object, like the man, was a dumbbell. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.